Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I love the church. This assembly of called out ones. The ecclesia, the gathering together of the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. That which belongs to him because he purchased it with his own blood as the Savior of the world. This living, breathing, growing organism. No, it's not an organization. It is that which God put together to develop the character of his people. That they might be conformed to the character of his son. It's our place for worship. It's where we work together, where we witness and live out the gospel to a hopeless and lost world. How would you complete this sentence? I love the church because. Let me help you. I love the church because it is identified as the family of God. The body and bride of Christ. The fellowship of the spirit. The common bond that we have together. And you know there are times that we just need each other. Speaking of each other. It is a beautiful thing to see the believers, the body of Christ, live out the one another's of Scripture. I love the church because it's the pillar and buttress of truth. We are the household of God, the assembly, the called out ones of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we are God's building. I love the church because the church is a mystery. It's a mystery how God makes known his riches to all mankind. How Christ is the hope of glory for everyone in every place in every situation. It's a mystery of intimacy and relationships. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, the relationship of husbands and wives identify the wonder of the church. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We also discover in that passage that Christ is the head of the church, the Savior of the body. It's a mystery because Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian and Scythian and slaves and free are all in all in Christ. You see, the church is not that which defines a social, economic, demographic, cultural, generation, or even tribal people. We're all blended together as part of the wonder of God's work in our lives. I love what Revelation chapter 7 reminds us. Here, John is talking about the faithful from the tribulation. And verses 9 and 10 tell us this. And ever this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the land. And you know, in the midst of that mystery, 
there is unity because all are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Yes, the church is to be a living, growing, caring, sharing organism that brings love and life to everyone and everything that it comes in contact with. I also love the church because what it is not. The church is not about a building. The church is not about programs. The church is not just a social interaction. The church is not something that shows off a social status. It's not intended to be a place of condemnation, but a place of encouragement, love, and acceptance. Acceptance in biblical truth. The world has affirmational inclusion. That being everybody and everything and every lifestyle is to be appreciated and included together. But the church, the church has transformational inclusion where because of what God has done in our lives and the work of the Spirit in our lives through the Word of God that challenges us and changes us, helps us to live out the biblical truth that God has given to us. I love the church because it's not a place where you just check spiritual boxes, where all of a sudden we have a list of those things that please God. Pastor John recently reminded me that it's not about our pleasing God, but asking this question, is God pleased. Dan Kimball, who wrote, They Love Jesus But Not the Church, said this, Jesus loves the church. Yes, the church is imperfect, and we have made mistakes. But if we love Jesus, then we will love the church, and my words are, and Jesus loves the church. Oh, I love the church, the assembly of believers, the called out ones in Christ, those who are banded together for work and worship and witness under the authority of the one who loved them and gave themselves, gave himself for them. I've asked a number of folks to Share with us while, why they love the church. And here they are. I love my church because it gives me an opportunity to grow in Christ, an opportunity to serve him, and a wonderful group of friends to enjoy those opportunities with. Thank you, church. I love the church because I'm part of the biggest family in the world with brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue. The Good Shepherd knows each of his sheep, and I am one of them. I love my local church because God has demonstrated when we show love for each other. From the time I came to Calvary after moving to Battle Creek, this church has played a central role in our lives. Mops and kids programs, student ministries and choir, families living together, churches adopted parents and grandparents, and adopted kids and grandkids, enrich our lives and encourage us in our growth in Christ. 
I love my local church uh, because of the people. All of my life, I have been loved and encouraged, guided, challenged, and supported to grow in the knowledge and grace of God. I really appreciate the people who invested their lives in me as a kid and are becoming my friends as a young adult. What I love about church is that church is like instant family wherever I have gone. God has moved me from Moscow to Battle Creek, then to Lynchburg, Virginia, then over to the east side of Michigan, and now back here again. And everywhere that I went, because I was a believer, I had a family that God brought me to. And uh, Calvary is definitely a special place in my family's life and in my own life and uh, holds very many special memories. But what I love about Calvary is that Calvary is the people, not the four walls. I love my church because I know it's a place where I can always count on everything that is taught and everything that is done to be based on the holy and inerrant word of God. And I love the fellowship in my church. We have a great church family. I also love the music in our, my church. We have an amazing amount of musical talent for a church our size. And then I also love the fact that our church is one that does all it can to spread the gospel throughout the world by supporting missionaries, by standing behind Operation Christmas Child and other things that we have opportunities to do along during the year. Thank you. As we look into the Word of God, we discover in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus used the word, word church two times. Now in Revelation, Jesus is identified as the one who walked in the midst of the seven churches. And he is the one who the angel to the seven churches relates his message to those churches. The first time in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus tells us about the church has to do with the foundation of the church. It's found in Matthew chapter 16 where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there Jesus says, Thou art Peter. If you look at the Greek, Petros, a small rock. And upon this rock, a large boulder, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The foundation of the church is indeed Jesus Christ the Lord. The other time that Jesus speaks about the church is found in Matthew chapter 18. There he is talking about fundamental relationships that are so necessary within the body of Christ. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that if a brother sins against you, go to him. Restore that relationship. And if that doesn't work, take someone with you and restore that relationship. And if that doesn't work, tell it to the church. You see, relationships within the church, the body language, the family dynamic, the blood-bought bond that we have in Jesus Christ is so, so important. That's why you've heard me say a number of times, in relationship issues, it's always your time to restore. Matthew chapter 5 says that when you're worshiping, if you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar. Go and reestablish your relationship with your brother. In Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus talks about the relationship within the church, 
He says, if a brother sins against you, go and reestablish that relationship. It's always your turn. And the longer you neglect to restore that relationship, the more difficult it will be. Yes, the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the bond together in Christ is so, so necessary because the church was bought by Christ. Here in Acts chapter 2, we have the formation of the church. It is indeed a turning point in history. God's redemptive plan unfolds with Christ and then the cross and then moves to the church and it is the culmination of called out people who are complete in Christ and will communicate the message of Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we have the time frame. This is the feast of Pentecost. And Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. Now the all that we have here is identified over in chapter 1 in verse 15. And there Peter stood up, the Bible tells us, among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120. So there could well have been 120 people at this meeting. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And if you follow the liturgical calendar or the ecclesiastical timetable, you discover that today is 50 days after the celebration of the Passover. Leviticus chapter 23 tells us about the feasts that were to be celebrated. The feasts that commemorated God's work in the lives of his people. There were seven in total. Four in the spring and three in the fall. In the spring, the first feast was that of Passover, then unleavened bread, and then first fruits, followed by Pentecost 50 days later. In the fall, there was the feast of the trumpets and atonement and tabernacle. Pentecost is also known as the feast of harvest or the feast of weeks. And it's called Shabbat. Some call it Azeret Shell Peskach. That means the completion of the Passover. And the first night of Passover to the final night of Pentecost reminded the people of the faithfulness of God who was their Redeemer and the rock of their salvation. He was the only one who could rescue them from bondage and take them to the promised land. It was a significant annual event. In fact, Jewish tradition tells us that King David died on Pentecost Shabbat. It is described as a holy convocation. It was a pilgrimage which all men were, who were able were to gather in Jerusalem. In fact, in verses 9 through 11 of Acts chapter 2, we, we discover that there are 16 different people groups. And the scripture tells us that there were people from every nation under heaven in verse 5. 
You see, it was God's plan that the people celebrate Shabbat. Now, there were two remembrances that the people were to have during Shabbat. The first was God's provision for them. For this was indeed a celebration of harvest, a celebration of that which God had given to them. It was an opportunity to honor God for his faithfulness. It was also an opportunity to see God's provision with those who were outside. For as the people made their harvest, they were to leave the corners of the fields for those who were less fortunate, to meet the needs of the poor and the sojourner, so that God's faithfulness could be evidence to all who dwelt in the land. God's provision. It was also to celebrate God's plan. His harmony as he brought the people together under his authority. You see, Passover was also the time in which God gave the law to Moses. A law that talked about the relationship that the people were to have with God. No other gods. No graven images. Remembering the Sabbath to to keep it holy. Don't take his name in, in vain. Relationship that the people had vertically with their God. And a relationship that the people were to have with each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Jesus talks about a new covenant, a new covenant that was in his blood. I think it interesting that as you study Leviticus chapter 23, recognizing the harvest and the harmony of God's people, you can go back to Exodus chapter 32 where Moses brought the law down from the mount. And as he did that, he discovered that the people were worshiping a golden calf. And it's interesting to me that, that at that point, there were 3,000 people who were slain because of their disbelief. If you look at verse 41 of our text, Acts chapter 2, you discover at this Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who were made alive. And as they gathered together on this first feast of Pentecost Day, the one where God would move ahead with his plan and help his people understand what he had for them, we recognize that God's work in establishing a new people of people who would live because of their love for him, having experienced his love for them through his son, Jesus Christ. As we read the text, not only do we discover that feast of Pentecost, but we also discover the fire of the Spirit. Follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In chapter 1, they had been told that they would receive the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And here they are gathering in Jerusalem and can fulfill the first part of what God intended for their lives. Jesus had told them that the Spirit was going to come. In John's Gospel, chapter 7, there he says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. Here in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is given because Jesus has been taken up out of their midst to sit at the right hand of the, the Father. He talked about the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 14. One who would be their helper, their comforter, who would be the spirit of truth in their lives. In John chapter 15, he says that the Spirit would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And the Spirit would guide them into all truth. Because he would not speak of his own. But he would glorify the Son, Jesus Christ. Now I think it interesting that as the Holy Spirit is identified as fire. We recognize that he is the primary agent in the sanctification process of the people of God. Just as a silversmith would use fire to purge the dross from precious metal. Today, God uses the Holy Spirit to address indwelling sin in Christians' lives and to grow the people of God in the grace to refine them and cleanse them from indwelling sin. You know, throughout Scripture, God used fire to get the attention of His people, to challenge them as called out ones by God. In Exodus chapter 3, we find the burning bush that got Moses' attention. In Exodus 14, we discover the Shekinah glory of God. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, talks about the, the fire that came down from God. Fire was also an instrument of God's judgment. Numbers chapter 11 and 1 Kings chapter 1. And it was a sign of God's power. In Judges chapter 13 and 1 Kings chapter 18. I wonder, what would God use today to get the attention of the church, his people? I also wonder, has God used this COVID-19 crisis to get our attention I believe that we cannot afford to continue to do church. We must be the church, the called out ones of Christ. We must be his hands. We must be his feet. We must be his voice. We must use his love to reach our world who so desperately needs hope that can only come with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
during the traditional celebration of Pentecost, a service would be held. And Ezekiel chapter 1 would be read. There the prophet Ezekiel says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Could that well have been a prophecy about the coming of the Spirit? Shabbat was also called Rak HaKadosh, which means holy breath. And as you read the text, you discover that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that was that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this was indeed the filling of the Spirit, not the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is described for us in Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it is that which places us within the body of Christ. The filling of the Spirit is the continual constant control that characterizes the believers with a supernatural power. Controlled by someone greater than themselves, living out a life above themselves. In Ephesians chapter 5 we're told, be not drunk, controlled with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. In order for us to be the church, we must recognize the fire that God has given to us within our beings, put there by the Spirit of God to be the people of God for the worship and work of God. Now, the demonstration of this control was that there was speaking in tongues. Known languages, coherent speech. It was a validation of that which would identify the followers of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. 16 different people groups are then described in the following verses who heard the word of God in their own language. In fact, if you'll jump down to verse 11, we read both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Yes, the fire of the Spirit. The validation of the message of the apostles came when the Word of God was preached and understood in native tongues of 16 different people groups identified here in Acts chapter 2. There are two other times in the book of Acts where Tongues are mentioned. Demonstrating the power of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 2, the folks were in Jerusalem. Pentecost, a gathering of Jewish believers, Israelites, 
who needed to recognize that God now was doing something new and fresh in their lives. The other two times are described for us, first of all, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter and Cornelius preached the gospel to a group of Gentiles, and, and there the Spirit of God comes upon them and validates that message with the speaking of tongues. And then in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus where a gathering of Jews and Greeks hear the message, are wonderfully saved. And again, the validation of that message is seen in the coming of the Holy Spirit evidenced in the speaking of, of tongues. Now, what was that foundation? The foundation of the message that was preached by Peter to these who saw the wonder of God in their lives. I think it interesting that the first event in the life of that early church was the preaching of the word. The giving of a, a message from God. We've studied 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we have discovered that the office of a bishop, elder, pastor, is different from that of, of deacons because those who have that office, the pastoral office, need to be able to teach the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy, preach the Word. Now we know that the preaching of the cross is folly to those who are not perishing, but unto us who believe it is the power of God who are saved. The foundation of the church, the message was not fulfilled in the covenants of God, not the covenant to Abraham or Noah or even the patriarchs, not the covenant to Moses or, or David. Those were specific promises to specific people that God had given to show his faithfulness. The foundation is not fulfilled through the law of God. Jesus came bringing grace and truth. Not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. The foundation is not in the keeping of feasts, those external acts because now it's internal attitudes that flow into actions as we show what God has done in our lives. It's not only fulfilled as a foundation in these things, but also it's not fulfilled in the foundation of the promised land. Because in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, the church is not a New Testament Israel. It's not a new and improved model from believers. The church is all about Jesus Christ, and that was the message that Peter gave to his audience this day. Jump down with me to verse 21 of Acts chapter 2, will you please? There Peter preaches, and it came to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The message about Jesus Christ was validated, confirmed in the signs of his miracles, in that which he accomplished. In fact, John's gospel tells us that if all of the signs and miraculous wonders were to be written in a book, the world's books could not contain them. But then John says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And why is that true? Because of his sacrifice. Delivered up, verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the message. The validation through signs and wonders and the sacrifice of Christ. But the message does not end there. Look with me at verse 24. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Jump down to verse 31, please. For he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. Raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. His message about Jesus Christ not only was about his signs and sacrifice, but it was also about the resurrection power of Christ, the new life, as the one who is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him shall not die, but shall have the light of life. And then the message was about the glorification of Christ verse 36 let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified now when they heard this they were cut to heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for their forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The glorification, as he is Lord and Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Christ, was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 climaxed in Jesus Christ. 
the promise of the suffering servant that we discover in Psalm 22 is seen in the risen Lord. And Isaiah 53 tells us about the sacrificial lamb. Oh, how wonderful the message of Jesus Christ is. The message in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The message that God so loved the world that He gave. The message from the cross is, it is finished. And the message given to his followers as they came to the cemetery that first Easter morning was, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes, we discover the formation of the church in the feast of Pentecost. In the fire of the Spirit, in the foundation of the precious work and ministry of Jesus Christ. But Luke also tells us the result of all of that. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. The stage had been set by the Ancient of Days, the pattern had been laid out of the first modinium, the appointed spring feasts. This Messiah of Israel put aside his glory and joined the ranks of mankind becoming the incarnate one. He tabernacled among us. And as John's gospel said, he dwelt among his own creation. Then came the climax for his time on earth, the crucifixion. The battle had been raged in the events of Passover week as he became both the bread and the wine and the lamb of sacrifice that death might pass over both the Jewish believers and all mankind who accept him by faith. Three days and three nights passed until the victory was declared. At the first fruits of Jesus the slain lamb became the Savior, the first fruit of our resurrection, glorified and dedicated, conquering the power of sin and death forevermore. With great anticipation, we can count the days from Passover to Pentecost and the birth of the church. The first harvest of mankind issued in the new era of Messianic revelation, a perpetual spring season that continues to permit germination, blooming, growth. This is no coincidence. This is God incident. That quote came from a radio Bible class discovery pamphlet called The Holidays of God Spring Feasts. You see... Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. 
Now, I understand that the church is a universal body of believers, a body that through the ages have celebrated the work of Christ in, in their lives. All who come to a personal relationship with God form his bride and will celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. But in that wonderful truth, there are local assemblies of called out ones, believers in geographical areas that picture the body of Christ. In the scripture, we read of believers at Corinth, at Galatia, at Philippi, at Ephesus, at Colossae. Revelation tells us about believers at Smyrna, at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I personally know of believers in Assam, India, San Paulo, Brazil, Panagasasayan, Philippines, Gerasku, Japan, Yuande, Cameroon, Laura, Ghana, Bowie, Maryland, Quincy, Illinois, Indianapolis, Indiana, Sandusky, Ohio, Rochester, Michigan, and Battle Creek, Michigan. All assemblies of believers who live out the wonder of the church, the relationship that they have as called out ones in Christ. I love the church. I love the church because it's the result of the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's the family of God. It's the fellowship of the Spirit. It's friends that we have for this journey. When I gather together for worship and witness and the worldwide proclamation of the gospel, when I serve and sing and study and live out my stewardship, when I celebrate the ordinances, when I'm challenged by others, or when I challenge others to be all they can be in Christ. It's all part of the work of church. Yes, I love the church. And as Dan Kimball has written, I love the church because Jesus loves the church. Yes, the church is imperfect. And we have made mistakes. But if we love Jesus, then we will love what Jesus loves. And the truth is, Jesus loves the church.